was thinking in preparation for this message, just there was a story that came to mind from my high school job. I worked at a grocery store. I worked at a grocery store for about two years, uh, you know, bagging, pushing carts, stocking shelves, all of that stuff. I, James Sullivan used to run grocery stores. I'm thinking, man, I would have made his life miserable. I, I was not a, a good employee. But there was this manager that I had one time, and there were a number of us, not all that worked there, but several of us who worked there with other high schoolers that we, we would get together and play basketball at this local park. And it was a kind of a typical classical playground, basketball court, high fence all the way around, full court, asphalt. And this manager that we had, he was probably, this is, he was probably my age, what I am now then, so he's in his mid-30s, and I was 17, and all the rest of us that played were 17. And he continually asked if he could join us. And it wasn't just like this gracious request, he was our manager, and, and so it was more like, you know, he would talk a little bit of trash while asking us if he could play. Are you guys afraid to have me? Things like that. Finally, we caved. We were like, okay, there's no way that this guy's going to get off our back unless we let him come play basketball with us. And so one day, we were playing basketball. We invited him, and he showed up fashionably late. I don't know if it was on purpose, but basically all of us were playing. We're there warming up on the court when he arrived. And I, I don't know if I can get this out without laughing because it's so vivid in my mind, but he, he kind of walked up. He had this swagger, and he didn't really say anything. We all kind of acknowledged him like, oh, you came, great, and he just kind of gave us a nod. He walks out on the court, and he claps, calls for the ball. So one of the guys warming up says, okay, passes him the ball. He catches the ball, and then he heaves it. It was, a, it was supposed to be a shot. He heaved it over the backboard, over the fence that surrounded the court, and out into the, the surrounding grass. And we all just kind of froze, kind of dumbfounded. And he didn't say anything, kind of shook it off, and somebody ran and got the ball and came back in, continued to warm up. And the long story short, he was terrible. I mean, absolutely terrible. And he had no idea. The, there was never a mention of it. The way that he carried himself prior to heaving the ball outside of the entire facility suggested that he thought he could play basketball. And he was bad. And so the rest of the day, through multiple games, his lack of skill was, was borne out. He had no self-awareness, none about that particular area of his life. And it's funny to laugh at that story, and it kind of hits close to home when we think that there are areas of our lives like that. And it's not fun to admit sometimes, but we all have a tendency to overestimate ourselves in basically everything. If we were to take a, a test, and on the test I asked you questions tonight like, are you a below average, an average, or above average driver? Are you an average or above average singer? Are you an average or above average athlete, etc.? Most of us would not say below average to much of anything. It's just human tendency. 
Professionals that make a career out of observing the behavior of fallen humanity have various names for this phenomenon. It's called the superiority illusion. If you're a Garrison Keillor fan, it's called the Lake Wobegon effect or the above average effect. Basically, it's the belief that you're better than average in any particular metric. I'm a better than average driver. I'm smarter than average. I'm nicer than average. The list goes on and on. I'm more generous than the average person. I'm more, I hold more doors than the average guy at the local store, etc. Ben Franklin is credited with saying that there are three things extremely hard. Steel, a diamond, and to know oneself. While lack of basically self-awareness in temporal matters is funny, <laughs> singing ability, athletic prowess, uh, I mean a whole, I mean dec over a decade, right, of shows like American Idol where some of the highlights were people's lack of self-awareness when they went out to sing. Those things are funny, they can make for embarrassing stories. But a lack of self-awareness in life's most important areas is tragic. It's serious. The Apostle Paul warned the believers in Rome not to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think in chapter 12, verse 3. One angle on the book of Proverbs is that it is intended to help us gain spiritual self-awareness. We've been saying throughout our study Proverbs is here to help us be wise enough to know what? That we're not wise enough. That is to properly estimate ourselves, to have the right spiritual self-awareness. Wisdom in the context of Proverbs is that ability to make moral or ethical decisions that please God in any given situation. We have seen repeatedly that wise people do the right things because they're thinking and believing rightly. They're motivated and guided by the fear of the Lord. And so they're submitting to the Lord's word, his commands, his ways. Because they fear him. Because of their God consciousness. We could say it another way that wise people are aware that their own intuition is insufficient. And that they need the wisdom of, that God provides preeminently in his word. And in particular for us in our study of Proverbs. We come to Proverbs needing to be made aware that our gut feeling as fallen human beings, even though redeemed, is not on par with God's wisdom. Our intuition is not enough. And we have to be aware of that. We have to have enough spiritual awareness to continually grow in that so that we aren't the not so proverbial, but for tonight's sake, proverbial guy showing up to play basketball who has no idea what he's doing but thinks that he really does. If you haven't yet, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter four. Proverbs chapter four. Pastor Adam started our study of Proverbs four the last time we met on Sunday night, covering the first nine verses. If we look at it in whole, it's interesting, there are three separate sections that are all broken down by Solomon's typical refrain or call to his son to hear, to listen. Basically, eye contact, listen up. And each of the talks in Proverbs 4 is distinguished by that call. Pastor Adam looked at the first call in verses 1 through 9, and tonight we're going to look at verses 10 through 27. I'm going to read them, and then we'll make some comments 
some observations about the, the structure and some of the terminology in the text. Proverbs 4, verses 10 through 27. Hear, my son, and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. If reading through those verses sounds familiar, then it means you've been listening as we've been preaching our way through Proverbs. There's nothing new here. No new ground, no new area of life in which Solomon is focused to give us particular and applicable wisdom for one aspect of our life. It is another call to listen up. Another call to recognize we, ha- we need something that we don't have. Another call to heed what's being given. It's, just as an aside, it's an important reminder for us. I, I'll confess, I found myself wrestling, oh, I, how am I going to preach this? We, we've, we've covered all these things already. And it, it's telling, right? Because just to ask that question is to say, God, why did you put this in here again? Right? Why did you repeat what you've said earlier in the book? He wrote it. My beef is not with my preaching assignment divided amongst the staff. It's with, it's with God. And that's a problem. And so it was a great reminder to just put on, say, there's a, there's a purpose to this. Why do you think it's repeated? Obviously, we need it. Obviously, the Holy Spirit through Solomon communicating to his son and then by extension to us needed to repeat the things over and over to emphasize the urgency with which we need to grasp what he's saying. We need to hear the repetition. We need to hear God's word as it unfolds. Just a few structural remarks. If you recall from the sermon before in verses one through nine, we were shown there that Solomon actually points back to what his dad taught him, the wisdom that David, Solomon's father, had given him. He says, when I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, and then he quotes what he taught him, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. 
Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. That's what Solomon's dad told him. And now in our verses 10 through 27, Solomon actually repeats the same things in slightly different variation, but basically the same thing now to his sons. So at the end of verse nine, we were exhorted to be, be thinking about the fact that Solomon came to the conclusion that his dad was right, that he should have listened to his dad, that his dad's wisdom. And now, not only was he saying, hey, dad was right, now he's gonna repeat the wisdom he received to his sons. Look at verse four. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Now look at verse 21. Do not let them depart from your sight. What? His sayings, his words in verse 20. Keep them in the midst of your heart. He's repeating to Rehoboam what David had told him. Verse six, do not forsake her, that is wisdom and understanding, and she will guard you, love her, and she will watch over you. Verse 13, take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her for she is your life. So Solomon is passing along what he received. First, he told his son what his father had told him. And now he takes it and he, he directs it direct, right at Rehoboam. Says it in his own words. The terminology throughout these 17 verses is interesting. It, there's path, way of life, walking metaphor language woven throughout. You hear way of wisdom, upright paths, when you walk, your steps, stumbling, do not enter the path of the wicked, don't proceed in it, pass by it, the way of the wicked, the path of the righteous. You see that, and then after verse 20, that metaphor comes back again, the end, verse 26, watch the path of your feet, do not turn to the right nor to the left. There's pathway language, course of life, Language Basically, the running, walking metaphor that's used was, as we recently heard from Second Peter, in the ancient Near East, it was a lot more important that the path you were on was stable than it is for us today when we have the ability to drive. Think about your, your children or especially when they're learning to walk and what you clear out of the way, my, my boys fall a lot when they're running, the slightest little thing in the floor and, and over they go. Path, walking is important and that path metaphor that is, is a course of life, a picture for your course of life and that's woven throughout. Not just in one section of this but throughout and so it'll come up as we work through the text. Just wanted you to be aware of that. I wanna organize our study of these 17 verses tonight around three questions. Three questions to evaluate your spiritual awareness. Three questions to evaluate your spiritual awareness. And because of, we're looking at two sections that are both marked out by Solomon's call to his son, we're gonna kind of take a higher altitude look at these and we're not gonna look at them necessarily all in order. And so I'll point that out as we go. Three questions to evaluate your spiritual self-awareness. The first question is, are you aware of your urgent need for wisdom? Are you aware of your urgent need for wisdom? The beginning of each of these sections, Solomon, in pleading with his son, and that being recorded for us in Scripture, communicates the urgency with which he wanted Rehoboam to listen up. He's communicating to him how important it is that he needs to listen to what he's going to say. Not just hear it, but listen and accept it. Verse 10, hear my son and accept my sayings. That's only nine verses after saying, hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. 
And only nine verses before saying again, my son, give attention to my words. He wants his son and us, we need to listen. We need to set our focus on the speaker. Listen to mom and dad in a sense. Take in what they're saying and accept it. There's urgency in Solomon's voice, if you can imagine that, as he's relaying these commands to his son. Verse 13, take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her. Hear the, the characteristic of the terminology that's used here? Take hold. Watch, accept, guard. Incline your ear, give attention. Do not let them depart, verse 21. Keep them in the midst of your heart. So the characteristic of the commands communicates urgency. There's action. And Solomon's repeated address that says, listen up, you have to get this, you have to understand this, communicates the urgency of what he's been saying throughout. You have to have wisdom. You need it. And spiritual self-awareness needs, proper spiritual self-awareness is aware of the urgent need for wisdom. That doesn't go away. It's this idea of seizing a hold of wisdom. In the verses that precedes our section, we heard acquire it. That's the beginning of wisdom. Acquire it. And with all you're acquiring, get it. Get understanding. And then he uses these words, grasp it, take a hold of it, cling to it, give attention to it, incline your ear to it, don't let it depart. That communicates urgency. Are you aware of your urgent need to receive what's being given in God's word? What are the stakes? Why is this urgent? Solomon gives us the, the stakes. What is at stake to take, to cling to, to grab, to guard, or to basically let it fall on deaf ears. In verse 10, he gives uh, one of the rewards of wisdom that we've heard about prior, and the years of your life will be many. Longevity, wellness. But in verse 13, he gets at a little different. He says, take hold of instruction, do not let go, guard her, for she is your life which up in verse four, David had told him, keep my commandments and live. It's a matter of life and death. What's at stake? Your very spiritual life. Does it get any more serious than that? We need to be aware of our urgent need for wisdom because very literally, spiritual life and death are at stake. We heard this morning the considerations that were made between how we respond to the gospel in our course of life, when we're distracted, when we're drawn away, when it's choked out, the same issue. Consider the, the, the matters of life and death, and Solomon's telling his son, you have to take this, you have to have this, because life is at stake. Verse 22, his words, his sayings, are life to those who find them. Health, wellness, life. I'm reminded of the similar heavy language that's used by Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses completes his, his song Verse 32, or chapter 32, verse 44, then Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he with Joshua, the son of Nun. 
When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. It doesn't get any heavier than that. They are your very life. Solomon is telling his son, son, take what I'm giving. Take what God has given me that I'm giving to you because life is at stake. Now he tells his son to keep them in the midst of his heart. And that, that helps us see, look, we're not talking about mere intellectual appreciation. These commands that are to be grasped, seized, held on to, kept where? Kept in your very life center. I want to talk more about the heart just a little bit later. Kept there, kept closer, they're to permeate your being. Basically saying they're actually to affect your life. It's the difference between appreciation and application. Those who are aware of their need for wisdom actively seek to appropriate, to apply God's word. If it's kept in the heart, that means it's applied. It actually affects our being and our doing. The stakes are life. It's interesting, Solomon almost woos his son a little bit, woos us after verse 10 by giving some of the benefits of wisdom in verses 11 and 12. He, he says, look, I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. The way that's been laid out by Solomon, the way of wisdom is a good way. It's the upright way. It's, it's the, the proper course of life. So that, verse 12, when you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. Again, stability. Think ancient Near East, rocky areas, probably not the best most stable footwear, a, a stable path was important for well-being, for life, for ease, for confidence in your steps. Solomon says, son, the path that I've laid out for you in wisdom that you so desperately need, that you urgently need, is a stable one. You will have stable life, a stable course of life. You can even run. That's the idea in the metaphor, right? To pick up and run. If you've ever been hiking or you've ever been in an area that is, I don't know, a little bit uh, more risky than running on your nice, however many lanes, track at your local school, it's different. Solomon says, the path is so stable, you'll be able to run fast. Your course of life will be able to go. You won't have to constantly worry and watch about falling, teetering. A stable course of life, spiritually stable. Later, that's going to be conscious to keep that illustration in mind because he's going to contrast that with the stumbling of the wicked later in this verse. They don't have that confidence. It's interesting when we think, just being aware that we urgently need wisdom. I was thinking of all the things that we, we urgently keep, we urgently tend to in life. Do we urgently tend to wisdom, do we urgently recognize our need for that? We urgently recognize our need to keep our money in a safe place. We urgently recognize that we have to have our kids belted down with like eight seat belts to take a drive. We recognize countless things that are urgent parts of our daily life that we would very rarely neglect. Are you urgent about your need for wisdom? There's an anti-indifference that's being called for in Solomon's words is these initial words to his son. 
You can't be indifferent. You can't hear, hear my son, accept my stains. The years of your life will be many. Take hold of instruction. Don't let go. Guard it. It's your very life. That's a, that's a call not to be indifferent, right? That's a call to not be complacent. There's an urgent need for wisdom. Spiritual awareness needs to be, needs to be elevated to a level where you're aware of your desperate need for wisdom. And Solomon's call then is to do something about it. What are we going to do about it? Have we asked the Lord for wisdom? Have we placed ourselves in the flow of wisdom, in the path of discipleship, all of those things that he's given to us? We urgently need it, and spiritually self-aware individuals recognize constantly their need. As they grow in maturity, they recognize more and more of their urgent need for wisdom. A second question. Are you aware that the trajectory of your life is the result of your choices? Are you aware that the trajectory of your life is the result of your choices? Verses 14 through 19. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. Down at verse 18. And then 19, he says in 19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. Verse 18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. There's two ways that are laid out in this proverb. And those are indicative of all of life as we've grown accustomed to hearing in this metaphor. There's the way of the wicked. It's contrast with the way in which Solomon has directed Rehoboam. Remember above, he says, look, I've directed you in the way of wisdom. I've directed you in a stable, upright way. And now he says, so don't. Don't choose the way, the path of the wicked. Avoid it. Isn't it interesting? This isn't just a symbol. There is urgency in his command here too. And the urgency is be aware that your choices have long-lasting effects. The choices that you make are what determines the trajectory of your life. And sometimes we hear the phrase victim of circumstances and Certainly, circumstances are providentially brought into our life that we don't always choose. But in the wisdom of Proverbs, he ties where you are in life and the trajectory, the plane of your life, whether you're walking in stability or whether you're walking in unsure stumbling and all of those things in the metaphor to your decision making, which is why he urgently calls his son, don't go that way. Go the way that I've set before you. Go this stable way. He goes on to basically describe what is at the end, what is along and what is beside this path that the wicked take in verses 16 and 17. They cannot sleep unless they do evil. It's a, an enslavement. They're robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. They live for wickedness, he's saying. Don't follow them is the idea. They eat the bread of wickedness. They drink the vine, wine of violence. That's their sustenance. That's what they desire to keep them going more and more evil. Solomon says, avoid that. Don't pass by it. Turn away from it. Pass on. He stacks up commands in that verse just to, it should get attention, right? That's a really bad place to go 
It's like the cartoon where the person looks at two paths and one looks really great, one looks really dark, and in addition to dark, there's warning signs and don't go here, danger ahead, all of those things, and then the misguided character takes that path anyways. He's saying don't go down that path, avoid it at all cost. Why? Because that's what charts the course of life. Decisions made that put you in that way have consequences. And the trajectory of life is determined by those decisions. It was helpful meditating on this. It's not just one decision. Certainly one decision can have massive consequences. But we shouldn't think of this as basically one decision. The decision to follow Christ versus the decision not to. That certainly would be a part of this. But it's not limited. This is every day. We've been told in our study of Proverbs, we make thousands of decisions. And God cares about all of them. All of our decisions affect the trajectory of our life. We're always being forced to make decisions between the way of righteousness, the stable path, the path that wisdom lays out, or the path of wickedness. We have to be aware that those choices are what determine the course of our life. We could apply this in so many areas, peer pressure, your friends, your habits, Solomon addresses peer pressure. He addresses your friends. He addresses the, thing that, the things that you habitually get yourself into later in the book. Are we aware? Are we aware that our every decision charts our next steps? And if so, are we able to discern the path? Are we able to choose wisdom? Think of this in just your relationships. Think of choices in your relationship with your spouse. Choices at work. Choices with how you raise your children. Things that are humbling to think about. Think about it five years from now. Ten years from now. Twenty the seeds that are sown through our decisions that, as the scriptures tell us, the principle that God has put in his economy, he's not mocked. We will reap what we sow. The decisions that we make now will affect later. And because God is gracious and because we've been forgiven in his son and he picks us up when we stumble, I'm not saying that we're consigned to always make bad decisions if we make one bad decision that that's it. But these decisions every day affect so many things. There are moments of trembling when you think that what, what you do now, if you're a parent, what I do now for my three-year-old son, what course of life is that setting five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? That's enough to make you, tr you tremble. Our decisions, our choices that so often we whiz by passively affect everything. Wisdom says you need to be aware that the choices you make will affect the course of life. I used to work in the engineering field and part of my job responsibilities were to be on job sites where there was a lot of concrete being poured. Expensive structures that generally held unpleasant things like wastewater, 
were built out of concrete. And a whole lot goes in to building a concrete structure, even just a big circle that's going to hold dirty, stinky water. As the, the plan, plans are made, calculations are gone over, double-checked, triple-checked. Materials are ordered. Preparations are made before the steel, the reinforcement that's going to make this structure strong can even be set in place. And then iron workers go to work and they build the structure with the steel. And there are regulations about everything they do with the steel, how far each bar is spaced from the other bar and how many rows of bars and how, what's the diameter of the bar, et cetera, et cetera. How many times are the bars tied together? And you go through all of these countless things and those are all laid out. That's all checked. It's all checked before the concrete company is ever called. So there's a structure in place that's going to be the basis or the steel reinforcing for the concrete and it's prepared and then formwork is brought in and it's put around. And all this is still before the concrete is ever poured. A lot of preparation for the structure. Then after they're just about ready, they say, okay, come on and check it out. Can we call, can we set up the concrete order? And it's cleaned out and there are nitpicky things that are gone back over. All of this again still before a truck has ever showed up on site. Then a truck shows up with concrete and concrete starts going in and it's wet, but it won't stay wet forever. And as concrete's going in, the structure's still being fine-tuned. Bars that need to be adjusted as the concrete's poured, it's still wet so they can move those bars. They can add bars where bars need to be added once the concrete structure starts to take shape, but it's still wet. And as it starts to firm up, but it's still wet, it's broomed or troweled or finished. And it's certainly not wet enough anymore to put rebar in, but it's wet enough to affect what the surface looks like. And then eventually it hardens. And that's it. So many times we make decisions over and over again at all of these stages, and at the end we look back at a mess and the concrete's hard. And you can't go back and fix a structure that's cured without breaking it. And while that's not a perfect illustration, it reminds us that we need to be doing things why the concrete is hardening, why it's being formed and structures are in place before it's hardened, before it's too late. We don't want to look back at life and situations that we've laid the groundwork for and the plans and say, well, the concrete's finished. But I, but I wanted to do something else. Our choices dictate our course of life. Spiritual awareness is aware of how our choices impact the trajectory that we're on. A third question, are you aware that diligence is required to improve your spiritual health? Are you aware that diligence is required to improve your spiritual health? Verses 23 through 27, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Here Solomon brings in a, a body illustration and it sort of mixes with the path illustration. And the idea is that diligence is required to improve our spiritual health. Proper spiritual self-awareness is aware that we have to engage, we have to be diligent. Listen to the words that he uses. 
Watch, watch or guard your heart with diligence. 24, put away from you a deceitful mouth. 25, let your eyes look directly ahead. Fix your gaze. Verse 26, watch the path of your feet. Watch, guard, put away, look. Action, all these areas of life that we have to be engaged in, diligent. Verse 23, such an important verse that finds itself in the midst of so many around it. In verse 23 in this proverb says that the chief area of concern, the central area to which we need to pay attention diligently is our heart. Your heart, you know well, is your mission control center. It's who you are. It's the real you. Your heart is your, your, the seed of your doing, your being. It's volitional. It's your will. Your heart is who you are. The construction of the terms that Solomon uses in verse 23 basically could be translated this. Some translators say this. Above everything that you are to guard, guard your heart. Why the focus so intently on the heart? Solomon says, for from it flow the springs of life. All of your life is affected by what's in your heart. Solomon has in mind here an outward flow from your heart, not a guarding and protection of things from out coming in. Okay, that could, that's an extended application. Yes, to guard your heart, you gotta watch what you put in to your mind, your eyes, etc. But the idea here is to guard your heart because what comes out of it is so critical. Your life, what flows out of your life, what you do in life, how you act, be, do, your relationships, your obedience, your disobedience, all those things come from the heart. And that Jesus says that, Mark 7, Matthew 12. Where, do, where does evil come from? It comes from within. It proceeds from in your heart out. So Solomon says, guard it. Keep it. It means pay attention. It means pay attention to your heart. Diligently. Not passively. Actively engage in evaluating and examining your heart because everything about you is affected by it. Famous quote from John Owen. Labor to know your own frame and temper. What spirits you are. What associates in your heart Satan has. Where corruption is strong. Where grace is weak. What stronghold lust has in your natural constitution. Be acquainted then with your own heart. Though it be deep, search it. Though it be dark, inquire into it. Though it give all its distempers other names than what are their due, believe it not. That means though your heart's going to tell you that all of those sins are something else, don't believe it. It's deceptive. Guarding your heart means keeping it in check, evaluating it constantly by the revelation we have in Scripture because you've been Regenerated, you can, you can see that. You've been given eyes to see, ears to hear. You can evaluate your heart. And Solomon says, wisdom diligently attends to it. Other areas that flow out of that then with heart as the center, verse 24, speech. Jesus makes that direct correlation, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You say what's in here. So guard your heart diligently. Above all else, guard it. 
along with that, put away devious speech. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. Guard your eyes. Let them look directly ahead. Now think again of the path metaphor. Walking along, eyes fixed ahead, not distracted from side to side, not watching where you're going. He says your gaze should be fixed, not drawn away from other paths, but set where you're walking. Watching the path of your feet, that simply again is watch where you walk. What's your course of life? Are you on the stable path that was laid out, the stable path that your decisions have contributed to, the stable path that wisdom that we so desperately need has put us on? Watch your feet. All of those things require diligence. Those who are spiritually aware are aware that our heart preeminently and then everything else has to be attended. It has to be tended to. It has to be kept and watched. We have to watch our lives as Christians. The Christian life is is not a passive exercise. Sanctification isn't passive. We're engaged. We have to be involved. There's deliberation, attentiveness. It's so easy. We we want the fruit of a of a long life of righteousness, often without the pain of self-denial and killing of sin. But God's word doesn't give us any other way. This is diligence. You must guard your heart, for from it flow springs of life. You must watch your mouth. You must pay attention to where you're looking. You must watch where you're walking. Diligence. 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Kent Hughes in Disciplines of a Godly Man says, Paul is calling for some spiritual sweat. Toil and agony are called for if one is to be godly. The successful Christian life is a sweaty affair. No discipline, no discipleship. No sweat, no sainthood. Not in the Roman Catholic sense, in the mature Christian sense. Diligence. Are you aware that diligence is required to improve your spiritual health? We can't expect to sit idly by and grow in Christ. And wisdom tells us that. This right view of self, there are so many applications of this, and I I spent a little time just trying to think of some indications. One thing I want to say is it's not phony, false humility, self-deprecation, kind of like Eeyore, this notion, I'm awful, I can't do anything right, don't anybody listen to me. There can be a false sort of self-preserving humility in that, or false humility, let me say. It's not false humility. You have the example of Paul in Philippians 3, that's a great place to look for what spiritual self-awareness looks like, where Paul, the eminent apostle, talks about how he just wants to continue to know Christ, to be found in him, to diligently labor after him. Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. Just some thoughts for a right view of self or an indication that we lack self-awareness connected to our three questions. 
connected to the awareness we need to have that we need wisdom. Are you quick to hear and slow to speak or quick to speak and slow to hear? Do you seek wise counsel and value input of other believers or have you decided that you're the only living person qualified to give yourself counsel? That's an indication of your spiritual self-awareness. The second one with choices. Do you take responsibility for instability in your spiritual life or do you seek to place blame at the feet of others? When you have spiritual instability, do you look inward? Or are you always looking to lay the blame of of your unstable spiritual life on someone else? Lastly, with regard to diligence, do you tremble, do I tremble at God's word? Does it give you pause? Does God's word make you pump the brakes and say, whoa, I need to slow down here. I'm headed in a wrong direction. I need to do a U-turn. Or are you constantly looking to impose your thoughts onto Scripture to justify your decision-making? Those who are aware of the diligence and the, their need for wisdom and the diligence of searching and testing tremble at God's word. In the prayer book, Valley of Vision, there's a prayer on self-knowledge. It goes like this. It's addressed to the searcher of hearts, the Lord. It is a good day to me when you give me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but you are my greatest good. I have cause to loathe myself and not to seek self-honor, for no one desires to commend his own dunghill. My country, family, church fare worse because of my sins. For sinners bring judgment in thinking sins are small or that God is not angry with them. Let me not take other good men as my example and think I'm good because I'm like them for all good men are not as good as you desire, are not always consistent, don't always follow holiness, don't always feel eternal good and sore affliction. Show me how to know when a thing is evil which I think is right and good. How to know when what is lawful comes from an evil principle such as desire for reputation or wealth. Give me grace to recall my needs, my lack of knowing your will in scripture, my lack of wisdom to guide others, my lack of daily repentance, want of which keeps you at bay, my lack of the spirit of prayer, having words without love, or my lack of zeal for your glory, seeking my own ends of joy in you and in your will my lack of love toward others. Let me not lay my pipe, that which is gonna receive water, too short of the fountain, never touching the eternal spring, never drawing down water from above. If you have access to that, I encourage you to get it and read it. It might go better for you with it in front of you than listening to me read that. But what's instructive about it is that it isn't this heaping of scorn upon self it's a desire to have a proper estimation in the light of who God is. And it doesn't stay with sort of this self-pity, but it turns to God and asks for grace. 